Welcome to the Human Advisor Podcast. This series is brought to you by Altruist, a digital platform that helps remove the friction from managing money and enables financial advisors to do their best work. Find your human advisor, or if you're an advisor, learn how Altruist can help you serve your clients better at altruist.com slash podcast. Welcome back to another episode of The Human Advisor. I'm your host, Desarte Yarnway. On today's episode, we have founder and CEO, Jason Wink. In today's episode, he talks about his upbringing, how all of the companies that he's founded has influenced altruists, and what young advisors can do to start, scale, or sustain their businesses. It's gonna be a great show. We appreciate you tuning in. Enjoy. Never forget, always go back and actually try to be part of that community always. Like, I don't think it's necessarily like impossible to have a part of you that realizes that you have to move on to some degree, but you never need to forget or leave people behind. Welcome back to another episode of The Human Advisor. I'm your host, Desarte Yarn, and we have the founder and CEO of Altruist, Jason Wink, with us here today. Jason, how you doing? I'm great, man. It's a real pleasure. I think it's our first time doing A Human Advisor together. Yeah, for sure. I'm so excited about it, man. And first and foremost, I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. When you think about the firm's name, Altruist, right, the ability to be selfless in giving, I think about you for giving me the opportunity for growing the company and just doing such a service for the industry. So I appreciate you and we thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you. It's obviously a very collective effort now, 100 plus people following, you know, sort of this idea to make financial advice better make it more affordable, make it accessible to everybody. And so I'm just glad that uh, it wasn't just me. There was actually like a huge demand. Advisors have been loving the message and yeah. obviously you and so many other people here. So it's, it's been awesome. Absolutely. One of the things that I will say is the human advisor, when I used to watch the show, right, it really showed me a different side of the industry and about advisors really making advice human. And that's what I wanted to do in this episode today. Get to know you, right, from your beginning, how you got to Altruist and everything in between. So I want to ask you the first question, man. A small boy from Michigan, right? How did you find your way into financial services? Yeah, um, it's a good question. You know, I think, so one, I, I never assumed that I'd be in financial services. So I, I think growing up, some people are like, oh, I always wanted to be a doctor and like right. save people's lives. Like for me, that wasn't the case. Uh, where I grew up, you know, I think more people dropped out of high school than went on to college. Like we had a very low rate of kind of people going on to college. So like professional jobs were really rare. Like there was, you know, maybe like one doctor in town, one dentist in town, like one CPA, like it was a really small town. Uh, there's a lot of farmers, you know, that was kind of yep. what the area I'm from is known for. So I think, you know, sort of timing and luck uh, have a lot to do with, you know, kind of where we end up. And, and the timing for me, I was in high school in the mid 90s. And this is like when computers really first started showing up like in the classroom, sort of in high schools. I remember we had uh, internet, I think when I was like a junior in high school, and it was like the most mind blowing thing right. ever. And then we got our first home computer, you know, probably around like 1995 or so. And so it really was technology that fascinated me more than financial services, right? So the entrance into financial services was really kind of accidental. You know, I was self-taught you know, I'd call myself a hacker. I'd say, I think it'd, it'd be uh, insulting to a real engineer to say that I was a real engineer. But just, you know, 
learned how to do a lot of things, like from a hardware perspective and a software perspective on a basic home PC, you know, back in the 90s. And uh, that then allowed me to, to think a little bigger, you know, started like thinking like, you know, maybe I could leave this town and go do something. Like maybe I could go to college, maybe I could, you know, start my own dot-com, which is funny, you know, today we call them technology companies. Back then we called them dot-coms because it was like this brand new yeah. You know, kind of thing. And uh, and that was always the dream. Uh, just so happened, like around the year 2000, I very accidentally, you know, found myself talking to a recruiter from Morgan Stanley. Um, that's how I got into financial services, I ended up getting a job there. And a whole bunch of like serendipitous things kind of happening in life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I look back now and, and I realize just how lucky I am that like all of these different things aligned at just the right time because five years earlier, like my life maybe changed pretty dramatically and five years later, perhaps the same. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so feel very fortunate that I got into this industry when I did. I want to go back to just your beginning, right? Because yeah. we're going to come back and talk finance. We're going to talk technology. We're going <laughs> to sure. talk all of those good things, right? But you talked to me once about just your home, how your mother really was like working these kind of jobs in between, service jobs, things of that nature. Like what allowed you to think big? Like when did you start thinking big about what could be accomplished? Because for me, I didn't have, like financial advisors weren't proximate to me. I didn't know what a financial advisor was until I went to Cal. And these people had parents that were advisors, doctors, lawyers, going to the Hamptons, doing different things, right? (laughs) And it opened my eyes, right? So being from a small town, seeing nothing but farmers, right? Having a mother that's, you know, working, you know, service jobs, right? Are you the oldest in your no, family? No, no. So my older brother, Ryan, uh, who actually works here at Altruist. Right. I know, you know Ryan. He's awesome, yeah. Shout out to Ryan. <laughs> well, yeah, let me, I'll rewind, right, and give a, a little perspective okay. on family life. And I, I think it's, um, like, as a parent myself, I think it's really critical that parents, you know, even my own parents right hear this and other parents hear this. But, but probably one of the most important things was, you know, I had a mother who instilled in myself and my siblings that anything was possible. Right. And it sounds cliche because there are certainly a lot of parents who will who will say, oh, of course, I want to encourage my kids to do whatever they think they can do. But I mean, my mom, we really believed it. You know, it was mm-hmm. like if we were like, I think I want to be an astronaut, right? Kind of playing a cliche, like she just would have been like, absolutely. I think you'd make an absolutely fantastic astronaut. Like, here's why you'd be such a great astronaut. Like, this would be so cool. And it would turn into like a manifestation of sorts, right? Like she had, uh, was the most encouraging, supportive person and was always glass half full or more. Like a glass that was half full to her was still like overflowing, you know? And I don't think that she ever, I never saw her really stress out. I never saw her, you know, panic. And she worked extraordinarily hard. So, you know, big shout out to mom, Deb. Uh, She's like the best. Uh, But uh, you worked a lot of jobs that a lot of people wouldn't be willing to work to raise three kids in. And it seemed like everything now, it's really obvious when I look back in hindsight, Everything she did was so that her kids could have it better than her, which again, I think most parents would say, of course I want that. But I mean, it's one thing to want it. It's another thing to like embody it with like every breath you have in right. your body. Like, and that's how she was. So, so growing up, we had like this incredible role model um, who instilled an extraordinary work ethic. You know, we knew that nothing was going to be easy necessarily. Like we weren't, we weren't poor because of how hard she worked, but we certainly weren't rich. Life was not as easy as I see it, like living out here in California nowadays. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's much more apparent now, like mm-hmm. how different you know, my life was than who I see kids living right now. But it was, uh, again, all these things that I would say, I'm so glad they were that way. I'm glad it wasn't easy. I'm glad that like, you know, 
I don't have like one pair of jeans that I have to wear every day and wear, use my brother's hand-me-down shoes for basketball. I mean, like this was, and I never ever thought that was unusual because it was very common where I'm from. Like everybody kind of had that same kind of upbringing in terms of like resources, but we had like this extraordinary role model and encouraging, you know, mother. And, uh, and yeah, now, you know, looking back, it's like, you know, she was very underappreciated, like in the jobs. It's like, uh, uh, she told me this story. Uh, she actually watched one of our internal episodes, our team produced. So three women of altruists talking about their journey in finance right. and technology. And my mom, so she was like in tears watching it because it was making her think back to some early jobs that she had where, you know, certainly was qualified to do more, but her job was receptionist. And her boss would say, you know, Debbie, make sure you wear a nice dress or skirt, you know, when you come in. And it's like stuff like that, that you, you don't realize as a kid that like, you know, our parents had to go through a lot worse even than what's going on right now, like in terms of like, uh, you know, the way women are treated in the workplace. And so these are all things that, that then shape you as a person. And certainly I, I'm hopeful that um, now as a parent, I'm able to do those same things for my kids, even with different economic circumstances. But, um, but yeah, I, I couldn't be happier for the youth I had. Uh, although um, I realized it was, you know, again, hindsight, it, it was not very glamorous. Um, like you, I didn't know any professional people. We had no financial advisors where I'm from. I never even knew what that was um, until I was in my 20s. And that's totally okay with me. It actually worked out great, better, better really. And that's why I ask, because when I see you and I see how you kind of navigate this space, I see a person that was encouraged to dream big, right? I see somebody that doesn't have limits on what can be accomplished. And I see that permeating through altruists and what we're trying to do, right? So it starts from the top and I kind of, those have early roots, right? I think I've ha I can identify the genealogy of how I got to thinking in the way that I have. So I had to ask about your mom and how you kind of got that, right? Now, let's fast forward back. You said you got a job at Morgan Stanley, right? What was your experience working in kind of the commercial financial services? Because I know that usually will lead you in a direction of staying or trying to create something for yourself. So what did that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And I would tell a lot of people earlier in their career, if, if you get an opportunity to work at a big firm, it's a great place to learn a lot of things. It's, it, for me, was not a place, I, I realized pretty quickly, it wasn't a place I wanted to be long-term um, just because it didn't fit sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that I had. But you learn a lot fast. Um, and, and, you know, the bigger companies, they do have, you know, significant training programs, for better or worse, right? Some of the things they train yeah. you on, you have to, like, re like unwash the brainwashing, I guess, um, uh, you know, later on. But, but I had a great experience. Uh, I was able to, I'd never actually been on an airplane before I took that job. And Morgan Stanley flew me from Michigan to New York, you Look know. Um, and so <laughs> it was, like, my first time, like, really leaving the state of Michigan. It was my first time flying. It was my first time in any major city. Like there was all these firsts and, you know, talk about like country mouse in the city. I mean, I was so you know, shocked. I was one of the youngest employees in the mm -hmm. world uh, for Morgan Stanley. That is so, you know, 20 year old kid really, really had no business being hired there, had dropped out of college to take that job. So I'd say like, you know, certainly the odds weren't in my favor that it was going to work out. But, you know, I think, you know, a lot of hard work, a lot of luck, you know, it was, uh, it was a couple of years that to me, it was like me finishing my degree, you know, yeah. I guess like, uh, and what I learned were, um, some really practical capital markets, you know, knowledge, which I think is, is very useful to have. But, um, more than anything, I got a chance to like, see just how big, like the problems were in the industry. Yeah. Right? What and were some of those problems? So the biggest one was I went there and I realized that nobody that I'd ever met in my life would ever qualify for yeah. the advice yeah. that I was supposed to be you know, helping create. Um, and, uh, and that was frustrating, right? When you think about like, uh, and this is a, a struggle, I think it's a good struggle to have, right? I guess, but like, as you're going through life, you get exposure to 
really wealthy people, really powerful people. And it, in some cases, like it's easy to kind of get pulled into that yourself and then like leave behind, you know, sort of like the upbringing that made you the person you are. Yeah. Um, and so it was a struggle where you're constantly going, okay, like here's like these incredible opportunities and you're around people that are just, you know, making gobs of money and have incredible influence. But in my heart, I always felt like home to me was this small community in West Michigan. And I couldn't help but think about like the classmates, my friends, my neighbors, my family. And what about them? Right. And that was probably the big struggle uh, for me and why ultimately I left is I always wanted to be able to do something that could help more people, not just rich people. And that was that was really it. Being in that environment, because I felt like I felt like I had to shed my skin in a way, right? Because I had to fit into this new wealth, this area that people had money, they knew money, right? They knew the information, they knew the tips and tricks to continue to grow and accumulate more wealth, right? So I found myself being somebody else at work and somebody else within my community. And I know a lot lot of advisors talk about having imposter syndrome. Did you feel that when you started your, your kind of first jobs in the industry? So it's funny. Um, so imposter syndrome is something I only like heard about recently. You know, I'm, 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 I've, I've most of my career I've been pretty reclusive. Like I, I wasn't involved in social media. I didn't have like Facebook accounts and wasn't involved in industry events. I just sort of kept to myself quietly right. executing like an idiot, you know, I guess. But um, uh, as I started to, you know, spend more time with others in the financial advice community and fintech community, I started hearing things like imposter syndrome. So I started, I was like, well, what is this thing? I feel like I should know what it is, right? I looked it up and I was like, surprisingly, I would say that, um, you know, I, as I look at like my own life, I've never viewed myself as, I've viewed myself as very fortunate, not successful, if that makes sense. Um, And uh, and so as a result, like I've never felt like I had imposter syndrome because I felt like, hey, I'm just really fortunate. And this might not last forever. And, and I never know when it could end. Like it's very conceivable that, you know, something could change in life and I could have a lot less in the future and I'm totally okay and comfortable with that. But whatever like, you know, theoretical success that I have, I didn't feel guilty about it. I didn't feel like it wasn't deserved. I didn't feel like I wasn't like, as you know, in the end, I felt like uh, one of the little things that happened, you know, in my life growing up where I did is like, if you, if you work extraordinarily hard and then you have you know, faith that like what's going to happen is going to happen. It's outside of your control other than the effort that you put out there. That's okay. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of how I, how I was. So, so as I think about things like imposter syndrome, classically, I'd say it was not something I actually ever felt like it was a big problem, but this idea of being like two different people for sure. Yeah. And feeling really uncomfortable around certain, you know, family, friends, um, childhood, uh, you know, friends, acquaintances, like that I realized like I'd went on to like a different world, even geographically right just like you have yeah. like like yeah. like you would go and move thousands of miles away and you're just your daily life is just so incredibly different right right than maybe people that you grew up with and so when you do go home right or you do go into a community that's like your people if you will like if i go back home to you know my family my classmates it, it's awkward right like i mean and, and, and you, you almost feel guilty um yeah. you know that you, that you haven't done more like in those areas and i think like hopefully you do this, I'm sure. I, I try to do this. Hopefully, more people do this. But never forget. Always go back and actually try to be part of that community. Always, like I don't think it's necessarily like um, uh, impossible to have like a a part of you that realizes that you have to move on to some degree, but you never need to forget or leave people behind. Like, and uh, in, in, in to me, that's uh, something I'm certainly trying to do now in my middle age. Uh, now that I'm a little bit older. So you, you're at Morgan Stanley, you realize that you have um, an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You realize that you can't serve the people that you want to serve 
What do you do next? How do you solve that problem? <laughs> yeah, so, so actually there's, a, there's like this big blank spot on like my, my CV that most people don't know about. I haven't talked a ton about it, but um, my first real entrepreneurial like venture I had this idea. I thought, well, what if like the average person, I was like, what is, what is like the average working class person? I, and, you know, again, I was pretty young. I, I, I honestly, I realized not the average person has this, but at the time I thought, what's the average person have? Like, what do people have back home like, where I'm from? And it dawned on me like, what a lot of them have is they do have a 401k. I realized like my mom, for example, had a 401k. She worked at a, an aluminum factory and while well, it wasn't glamorous, you know, she was able to put a certain percentage into that 401k um, each pay period. And so I thought, well, what if there was a way to help, you know, a blue collar, white collar, whatever, like anybody who has a job that has like a 401k, what could I do to help them with that 401k? Like that was my first venture. So I, I created this, this website and this is way before probably, I don't know, I'm not sure there was anything like it at the time, uh, but I had this idea that you could, you'd be able to go to a website, you could um, say, I work at, let's say General Electric, and then you could go through like a few risk questions and then the system would spit out, here's what you should do with your 401k. Oh, wow. And then every month it would send you an email saying, hey, if you need to make any changes, here's what they are. And it was my idea of like creating a really low cost, affordable way that anybody that had savings, even if they didn't have a financial advisor, they couldn't afford some you know, private wealth manager or something like that, but they could inside their 401k make really smart decisions that would help them drive a lot more wealth. And, and part of this came from, as I would talk to people like my own parents, I'd realize that like their way of investing in a 401k back then, you know, like yeah. 20 years ago, um, they didn't even know really at the time, like, should I have money in, like, what is large cap? They didn't know what large cap was or mid cap or like, like even like equities and bonds, like it was very Greek to them. Mm -hmm. And so it dawned on me that like, if you could help people build like, right, that appropriate portfolio, sans any planning, at least you're getting the chance to have their money work for them and grow over time. Mm -hmm. So that was the product, right? Um, it was called Smarter Than Wall Street. And it was, uh, a subscription-based service, I think it was like 29 bucks a month. And over time, if, my, if, if I didn't already have like all the 401k options in the system, you could say, hey, I work at such and such company and you could actually upload, you know, here's what my positions, like the wow. position options were. And then I built this huge database of like, you know, hundreds of companies with tens of thousands of positions. And it was a really good learning experience. So when I think about like the, the things that make even like today or 20, fast forward 20 years and I go, how did I learn anything about marketing? Well, I had no marketing because I had to go directly to consumer yeah. before there was such thing as direct to consumer like online marketing. I, I was doing it. Google AdWords were like just getting started, right? So you could do like pay-per-click advertising, which is like radical concept, yeah. right? Um, and, uh, and I was doing those things to, if, if someone did a search, for example, for like, you know, how to manage my 401k, like for like a penny, I could get them to click on my ad. And for like 29 bucks a month, they could get this sort of automated you know, model portfolio help, right? So the big learning experience, right, I would say is that um, most people um, didn't want to invest the five minutes per month that it would take, right, to actually open that email and if they had to make any changes, implement them on their own. So after a certain number of months, um, the average person would cancel their subscription. They'd stop paying for the service. And, that, and, I, and, I, and I was sitting there going, man, like why? So then I started doing, a, you know, sort of a exit interview, if you will, or a back-end survey. And, and most people, they, they just said, look, I don't have the time, but you know, if you did this for me, I'd pay you like 10 times as much money. Mm -hmm. And then the light bulb went off and I was like, I should become a financial advisor. You know, I should get licensed, form my own, you know. And that was the whole rabbit hole, like where I entered the RIA space. You, you know, 2004, I started my first RIA. Um, I learned what like an independent broker dealer, what, like all these things, which again, I had no real knowledge what these things were, mm -hmm. this whole world that existed. 
But I realized like that's how I can take these same clients and help them on an ongoing basis and charge them a fee for it. And so that was, you know, how I kind of left Morgan, started my first venture that I thought could help everybody. Um, other thing I learned was that the typical subscriber to my subscription service was older. They were baby boomers, right? So I thought, because I was young at the time, at 22 years old, I thought, it's going to be all these young people like me that are young and they're using technology. And right. I was like, it's actually not. It was actually like people who were a little bit older and they were using the internet to try to gather information. Not a lot's changed, right? Like when you think about like what's happened 20 years later, people, I mean, there's other dumb things we all use the internet for, but there's also like people looking just for information, education, stuff like that. So anyway, so when I started my first RIA, it was called Retirement Wealth Advisors. And it was because I recognized that a lot of these clients, you know, that were kind of coming through the internet were retirement focused. Like that's why they were there. And I thought, let me just create a firm that helps these people plan for retirement, right? So that's kind of like a five-year journey, right? Yeah. Like that whole kind of, um, you know, getting into the space as a really young, you know, really more of a, a technology employee, deciding to become an entrepreneur using the internet and then realizing that the best way to help people was actually being a licensed advisor. Um, and that's all transpired from like 2000 to 2004. 2000, 2004, you transitioned into the RA space, right? You learned a lot in that, that first experiment, right? with marketing to now becoming RIA, right? I know that you had a blog as well. How did you communicate with your clients that were seeking retirement help and how did that kind of help your trajectory to having a multi-hundred million dollar RIA? Yeah, you know, so I'd say like, uh, um, so to like kind of help a lot of people understand, like this was before there were robo-advisors. Like, I don't know what Josh Brown was doing back then, but I'm pretty sure his reform broker didn't exist, you know, the blog, right? So. So there wasn't really Which makes like, you a pioneer, by the way. <laughs> well, uh, pioneers end up face down with arrows in their backs, as they say, you know, so I, 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 I'm cautious to use that term. But, uh, but it's, uh, there wasn't like a template. Like today, there's so many prolific sort of advisors that are very transparent and open about, hey, here's how I, you know, allow clients to find me through SEO. Hey, here's my Facebook marketing tactics. Here's my, you know, podcasting techniques. Right? There's, there's a lot of people that have been, yeah. fortunately, very... Um, open with sharing. But back then, there was really nothing. You had to kind of figure it out on your own. And so, like, client acquisition for me, like, I actually, I borrowed the concept from Amazon because there wasn't any financial advisors doing this stuff. And so I thought, well, let me just, like, you know, see, well, what other companies and other industries are doing things with the internet that, that might work for a financial advisor? And the concept was simple. I thought about Amazon's business back then and one of the things that back then they didn't have like Amazon basics, like they didn't sell any of their own products. They were only essentially an e-tailer, like just representing. In fact, most of the products were actually sold through sub stores, right? Like the other sellers using Amazon as a marketplace to distribute the product. But Amazon did something that was really, really powerful. And that's that they had incredible SEO around the specific products that they were selling. So the, the analogy I always give is that, you know, someone who goes online and searches for like, and this is going to show my age, right? But back then in the, in the mid 2000s, um, a flat screen TV was a big deal. I'm not a flat screen TV was like this big. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. It wasn't that flat. I but want that 10 yeah, inch right It was there. like an eight inch flat. <laughs> so it wasn't like really a uh, thin screen. But anyway, but so the analogy would be like, if you're just looking for a flat screen TV, you're just curious about this whole new thing about flat screen TVs. You can mount them on a wall, right? Um, but if someone's like plugging in like, you know, LG 45 inch, you know, whatever. Back then, I don't think there was 4K, so it'd probably be like whatever 1K yeah. or something, 720P. No I don't know. Right. I don't even know what it was. But, but if you put in the really long tail description, this means that you've already done the first set of research, right? You you know what you're looking for, and you're just trying to find 
like the best deal or find the reviews, right? And that's the other thing Amazon did really, really well is they had reviews on every product, anything you could ever think of. And they had hundreds, thousands of them sometimes. And this allowed it to be when you looked for almost anything, Amazon organically was one of the top rated, you know, top listed searches far better than really almost any other, well, I think any retailer, e-tailer, you know, right? Um, So I thought like, what if we did that for financial services? Like there's all these people out there. If they're looking for something as basic as like financial advisor, I'm like, eh, probably still at the very early stage of the research. I want to find that person who is already decided they want to make some changes Mm -hmm. and they are going to likely be making that change soon. Like maybe like in the next week or 10 days or 30 days. So right? what did that, what did that look like? What does so that, that search, search would be, entry look like? Yeah. So what I found was interesting, right? So, so you had a lot of financial advisors spending millions of dollars, product companies spending tens of millions of dollars promoting specific products. So it could be something like a REIT. Um, the one that like was, you know, my big claim to fame back then was annuities. I realized like, okay, a lot of people, um, and especially as we got closer to like the global financial crisis. Yeah. It, like these things exploded because of people wanting to, you know, advisors trying to sell safety and security and things like this, right? And so you had, you know, again, tens of millions of dollars of talent promoting these products and you'd have consumers kind of going, should I buy this? Like I met with this advisor, they pitched me this, you know, ABC annuity with all these riders and I don't know, is it good, is it bad? And I thought, what if there was an Amazon for these products, right? You could just go online and you could find a review site that explained them and, and kind of borrowing from the way that Amazon even did descriptions and again, long form reviews. Um, they had video demos of a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of stuff they were doing back then. I had integrated all those things right into a blog. So that was like my lead gen was again, writing product reviews and, and it worked extraordinarily well. And ironically, I shared all this, by the way, like, you know, over a decade ago, it still works. There's still not a lot of advisors like doing this. It's, it's wild to me that, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are still being generated per year from the same blog that I created, you know, a decade plus ago. But that was like a lead gen thing. And then in terms of communication, I did the same thing. It was just like, you know, again, I'm not a savant or anything. I just was looking at my business and I was going, you know, if I want to do great work for people, there's a few things that I recognize were important. One, I had to be able to serve a larger number of people and a broader group of clients, not just really wealthy people, but like lots of people. So if I'm going to do that, I have to be extraordinarily efficient. There wasn't a lot of good FinTech tools back there. Um, So a lot of what I broke down the efficiency around was communication. And to this day, interestingly, you know, uh, when people are surveyed around why did they change advisors? And it's usually because the client says, well, I don't feel like the advisor cared about me. You know, they didn't stay in touch. They didn't write. So I thought, well, what could I do? And, and at the time I thought, you know, a blog would be a really good idea and video would be a great idea, right? So way before human advisor or like lots of like, I don't know how many advisors were doing video back then, but it was real crude, you know, yeah. 10, 12 years ago. Um, but, but those were things that I started doing is I just started creating um, regular posts and I'd be real consistent with it. And I would make sure all my clients were on those lists. And this allowed me to communicate with my clients sort of, you know, whatever, let's say a hundred people all at once, right? With one 30 minute video, like on what's happening in the world, what's happening with money, with the content I was creating for clients, all the prospects, right? Coming from mm-hmm. top of funnel, they got a really good experience of what it was like to be a client. And one thing I'll say about like the content itself is that um, everything was still designed for retirees, right? So one thing to be really clear about is like the, the firm was called Retirement Wealth. I was writing about products that were being commonly sold to retirees. So I was attracting the right type of prospect. 
And then all of my content was geared towards, again, retirees. So I'd have like, you know, what was it that was concerning them? Usually it was like the number one fear is running out of money, right? So I would have a lot of like, you know, sort of the content was around like specific strategies to make sure you never have to worry about running out of money in retirement. So this was sort of my flywheel. And I guess what I, I was going to get to is like that, you know, back then, I didn't know that term, right? I don't mm-hmm. know that people commonly use it. Now, like all these tech companies are like, oh yeah, well, here's our flywheel, you know, that's how we yeah. grow the business. But the flywheel for me was like an accidental discovery of just sort of like making sure I had like this top of funnel mechanism to bring people in, educate the entire crowd at scale, including clients, um, serve the clients virtually. So Zoom didn't exist. GoToMeeting was totally junk back then. Like Skype was pretty bad, but that was about the best option if you wanted to use video. So, I mean, this was, these were the tools we had, but, um, but allowed us to serve a lot of people. And, you know, some of the interesting things when I look back at like those years, um, again, I didn't know this at the time, but like I was learning a lot of the things that were going to be required to successfully build like a larger scale company. Like I, like I had to kind of walk before I ran, so to speak, in, in, in learning a lot about client acquisition, serving clients, delivering financial plans at scale, like just even understanding like what makes clients um, happy, unhappy, you know, how willing would they be to embrace technology? This was always something again that thankfully, like the industry's figured it out, I think by now, and and, and to some degree, the pandemic accelerated this. Mm -hmm. But over 10 years ago, I mean, the the first reason I started doing virtual meetings versus in-person meetings was because like a couple uh, clients of mine that were in their 70s, I was living in Michigan at the time. It was winter and there was like two feet of snow. And this couple uh, calls me up like 15, 20 minutes before we had a meeting and they go, hey, it's just too much snow. We don't want to drive into the office. And the office, mind you, was like five miles from their house. Mm -hmm. They're like, if you'd be open to it, we could just do like a Skype call. And so that was the first time I ever did a virtual meeting. And it like this light bulb went off. I sent the note out to every single client after that meeting. Cause we did the meeting and the clients were like, this was so good. Like we should do every other meeting like this. Yeah. And I was like, that's a really good idea. Imagine how many more people I could serve and how many people all around the country, you know, it, like, but these were things that again, there wasn't like a, no one had done this stuff before, right? Yeah. So like there was no blueprint for how to do it. We had to figure a lot of this stuff out, but it's all of that knowledge that has like then led to like my next venture, you know, which was yeah. kind of, you know, a spinoff of, of retirement wealth. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's timestamp this right now. This was in 2000 and... Uh, like the 2009 or so, 2009. probably 2009, 2010 is when I kind of had the idea to build another company. So 2009, you had your marketing plan. You learn how to do financial plans at scale. You were specializing in a niche group of clients, which were those retirement clients, and you went fully virtual. And I think you only had one other employee at the time, right? And so the employee base was interesting. Like, um, so I learned a couple things I'd say. Like one is uh, back then, because there was no, like, there wasn't social media really for advisors. So we, we didn't have like this, there, there was no like peer pressure. Like I made decisions based on data, right? And so I didn't have like, I didn't have peer pressure, so to speak. And so my logic around how I built my firm was simply like, if I want to serve more people and do it at lower prices, I can't have like a whole bunch of employees. Mm-hmm. I can't have a whole bunch of tech vendors. I can't, right? So like I, I very intentionally was like, I need to have the simplest business possible, sort of the leanest business possible so that I can deliver advice at scale at low cost. Um, and so, yeah, so for, in terms of employees, I had one full-time employee and the lesson I would tell most advisors, you know, I've talked a little bit about this, but is uh, yeah. my one employee was like very well qualified. It was someone who, you know, was an accountant. They had actually run a small business as like the sort of CFO, COO. Um, they were actually a, a business owner. They owned part of that business. They had sold that business to another family member. 
and they were like around 50 years old. So they were experienced, kind of polished, and they were not cheap, right? They were kind of expensive. And instead of hiring kind of like an entry-level, more clerical employee, like I just hired like one great employee. And this person did all my bookkeeping. They paid all of the bills. Like, you know, I, I, I trusted them with like the, the checkbook, which might've been dangerous, but it turned out to be okay. I didn't have to, they didn't ever steal any money from me. So I was good there. But they were also totally comfortable with clients and clients actually were super comfortable with them because the clients almost looked at him like he was a peer. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing that was interesting too, is that, you know, my, like my version of like administrative assistant, office manager, ops manager, and like, you know, controller, was a 50-year-old guy. Um, wasn't like, you know, um, the cliche thing, like what people forced my mom into doing, like, yeah. oh, have a put a pretty girl at the front desk type of thing. You know, I, I never really thought that way. So we we had this one incredibly talented, hardworking, experienced person that could take on a ton of work and allowed me just to work with clients. It was really fantastic. And eventually we got to, we had too many clients. Eventually I had another advisor join and then another advisor. So at one point we had three advisor and advisors and one full-time employee and that was it. And, and managing multiple hundreds of millions of dollars and growing by 50 to 60 million per year with a $0 marketing budget, which is probably, you know, again, at the time, really rare because there was so few people using the internet to get clients. And mind you that like, Doing 50 million in like 2009 is a lot different than doing 50 million today yeah. when the market's up 150% and all these other things, right? So it was a lot of volume and, uh, and, it, was, and it was actually very easily manageable by that very small group um, because we had really efficient processes and we had very minimal actual technology, which is kind of an, an interesting, you know, oxymoronical kind of you know, thought. Not to jump to Altruis and how you've built that firm, but do you think that experience of running a lean firm, right? has led to you creating this platform and this technology that allows advisors to reduce their technology spend by so much. Because I see that, right? You're like, I'm running a leading firm. I have four advisors or three advisors, one full-time employee. I think I see that that kind of similarity with what you're trying to do at Altruist. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, so there's a balance, right? Like one yeah. of the things that's important is you have to listen to your, your customers, right? In our case, our customer are financial advisors and we want to make sure they're really happy. At the same token, when I started Altruist, I never, and, and, and I hope this doesn't turn off our, our advisor fans, but I didn't start it with like this idea of how can I help financial advisors get as rich as possible, right? And as successful as possible. It's yeah. never the mission, right? The mission day one was how do we make financial advice better, more affordable, and accessible to everybody? Now, if you're going to do those things, you cannot listen to every financial advisor because there's yeah. plenty of greedy financial advisors out there. And there's also a lot of like lousy financial advisors. There's also a lot of ineffective financial advisors, like maybe well-intentioned, but they just aren't effective entrepreneurs. And if you listen to everybody, this is part of the problem with like financial technology today is that too many companies have actually listened to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so they built products that do everything and they do everything kind of average and maybe even below average. They've introduced tons of complexity. When I look back at like when I started, I will say like, like most of what people use today was, it was never necessary. We have all these products that were created and they're like shiny objects and advisors like, if I only had this thing, that must be the secret to success. They latch onto it. Yeah. And then they go and they latch onto another idea and then another idea. And before you know it, they've got, you know, whatever, like 40 grand of like, you know, fixed costs to, to, to just like yeah. operate. And none of their clients ever asked for that. Like when you think about like what a client wants, uh, most people, they just want to know that everything's going to be okay. You know, um, I, back in the day, I used to do all these surveys with my clients and, and what they'd come back and they'd say is, I want to know, what do I have? How am I doing? Is everything going to be okay? Yeah. Like, that's what they want. Do they want to know, like, if they're, like, 
what is the alpha generation? Like, no, they don't really care. Like, you know, like, in, 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 am I going to optimize to the nth degree, like some specific outcome? Again, that's not really like something that they're going to ask for. So as advisors, we've created a lot of complexity. A lot of companies have been spun up in the last 10, 12 years with these little specialized things that they do. And again, we've, we've made it a lot more complex than we have to. So when we think about like the altruist product, um, you know, for an advisor, the idea is actually like, how can we help an advisor deliver on that mission of the company? How can we help those advisors keep their costs low, deliver better outcomes to their clients so that the, ultimately the client gets a better end result with their money? Um, this is gonna make people happier, happy clients. You know, we talk about like a flywheel. It's interesting. Um, it, we've been really, really lucky here to have Bill McNabb join our board. He shared kind of Vanguard's flywheel. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but he shared kind of like what, what made them so unique. And the, the first thing that it was actually like on their sort of flywheel was have the best performing products. Now this sounds strange, right? Because like we think about so many advisors like, whoa, whoa, whoa cannot sell performance. Cause that's a, that's Don't really dangerous, that. right? Yeah. Don't sell performance, it's a bad <laughs> idea, right? But actually that was like one of their top things was that one of their top sort of KPIs was we wanna have the best performing products. Now, interestingly, the way they measure that is they wanna have all of their products. So ETFs, mutual funds, et cetera, be in the top 10% of their peer group once they have 10 years of history. Nice. And so, um, and, they, and they actually deliver on that, by the way. And, and part of it is because like they have this like, you know, belief that they only will build products that have like long-term lasting value. So they don't follow fads. They only build products. So you think about like their product lineup, they, they really try not to have like whatever, like every little fad that nice. kind of pops yeah. up and they launch an ETF on Social it, right? Social media ETF. Yeah, right. Yeah. Theirs is like, no, let's just build like a, a stock market ETFs, make it incredibly low cost. It's not like they're trying to build outperformance. They're trying to build efficiency. That efficiency is what yields outperformance. You know, their second, you know, sort of part of the flywheel was um, deliver great advice and insights. And so they wanted to build sort of like advice that allows people to think better and make smarter choice with their money. Their third, by the way, was user experience, exceptional user experience. We're talking like the second largest asset manager in the world. You know, I think arguably the most innovative company in the United States in our industry, you know, in the last 40 years. And like, at the end of the day, like you could boil down their entire business model into like just a handful of really important things. Um, and uh, that they track, you know, obviously there's probably thousands of little things they track, yeah. but like there's a handful of like, the things that are really critical to them. Yeah, we as independent financial advisors, right? One, two person shops, five, per we might create like the most complex, yes. craziest things like that we're, yes. trying, we're trying to control all this shit we can't control, right? right. Like, and so I, I realized like I can't force anybody to change how they do their business, but I at least want to try to create tools that allow an advisor to better serve their customers, serve more of them so that lots of people can get access to great help and ideally they can do it at lower cost, not higher cost. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's gonna be critical for advisors long-term to have better control of their expenses because we've all been really lucky. The last, you know, I guess it's like 12, 13 years, we've had like the craziest bull market. Yeah, It's made it really easy for clients to grow their wealth and advisors have all this built-in gross profit, sort of like, you know, um, what I guess I would call like net revenue retention, in mm -hmm. other words, Clients are becoming more and more valuable every single year. So it's okay for the advisors to kind of run sloppy businesses mm -hmm. um, where their expenses are kind of like, you know, not incredibly well controlled. There's a great metric that I think advisors should track, which is sort of like their revenue growth divided by their expense growth. This would measure how much more efficient they're getting each year. Yeah. If they did that, they might realize like, oh, you know, 
shit, maybe I'm not all that efficient. You know, maybe I'm adding all this complexity and my business is growing, so I think it's working, but yeah. I'm actually not really resulting, you know, creating better results um, as smart. a business or for my clients. Um, and so Altruist was like, you know, yeah, selfishly, it's the thing I wish I always had. Something that I could have plugged into that would have made it way easier. I could have served 10 times more clients at half the prices that I did back then. I could have run a billion dollar firm with just that one employee. Yeah. Right? I didn't need a lot of complexity. Now, do we want to integrate with a lot of other fintech companies? Of course, there's, there's a need for more than like what we do. We realize we're not trying to boil the ocean with features, but I, I really hope advisors, if they're watching this, that they think long and hard about like, what is it they want to do big picture? And I hope a lot of it revolves around serving clients. Like that was always my like North Star. It's why I left Morgan Stanley to start my own company. How do I serve more people? How do I broadly get more people access to advice? How do I lower the threshold, both in terms of how much money you need and the cost of it, right? And I've spent 20 years trying to figure this out. Like it is a really big problem. We still haven't cracked it. Like it's still hard. Now it's getting better. There's more and more advisors that are serving a broad group of clients. Um, the industry is getting more diverse. The clientele is getting more diverse. But we have like so much more to do and mm -hmm. so far to go. And the last thing we want to do is revert back to the old ways of like, you know, let's just serve super rich people, create super high minimums, have so much complexity and cost of doing what we do that we have no option but that, right? And that's unfortunately something I noticed really creeping in the last few years was like, is like almost like too many vendors, too much complexity, too many complex products, too many expensive products. And it was making like all of the progress revert and people just started going back to being really upmarket. And that's like the wrong direction. This industry needs to help more people. I agree 100%. You said something that was so profound to me. You said that efficiency yields outperformance. Now that I hear your story, I kind of see this string being drawn throughout your different entrepreneurial ventures, you being more efficient at each stop, right? So after this, 2009, you started Formula Folios. Yeah. What did you learn from that experience? When I started that company, it was it was right around the time that the robo advisors were first launching, right? So like um, Wealthfront was something before it was Wealthfront. I forget what it was, but they pivoted, became Wealthfront. Betterment, I think, was launched around 2010, 11, 12. So right around that time, I started seeing this world like, man, there's these new, this new breed of robo advisor. I didn't, I wasn't fearful of it necessarily because I always felt like there was going to be this big demand. But one of the things I recognized, I was like, boy, they're, they're spending a lot of money to get clients that don't have a lot of money. And I'm like, this is a kind of a, not a great business model. We were attracting a ton of clients sort of like through this top of funnel. It was growing, growing. But one of the things I recognized was that I'm going to have to hire a lot of financial advisors if I want to do a business where we take care of all of these clients ourselves. And, and the capital cost of that would be high, right? Like, you know, I'd have to hire people, train people. I, I could already play it forward. And I was like, we could have two, 300 planners, right? And, and some people would be like, that's wonderful, do it, right? Yeah. I was like, that's really inefficient. <laughs> like, you know, I don't want to do that. Because in my mind, I thought, there's already thousands of financial advisors. Right. What if I just like let them plug into the digital marketing, sort of like the front end kind of growth engine. And also we built a bunch of our own tools to more efficiently, you know, build out the portfolios, deploy the portfolios, trade the portfolios. So like, what if we just like took the mousetrap and we sort of made it B to B to C? That's how formula flows came about. Uh, quick, you know, marketing tip for, for advisors. Um, formula folios actually existed in 2005, but it was like a trade name. It's what I called my portfolios. Oh, gotcha. um, so at Retirement Wealth, when a client would say, well, how do you manage money? I said, well, we created this process. We call them formula folios. And we call it that because we just use these pre-built formulas to help us automatically make smart choices with our money. Nice. So the lesson is 
I heard someone say this the other day, and I'm like, yeah, I've been doing this for like 20 years, but uh, is give everything you do a name, right? Our financial planning process, we called it results in advanced financial planning because we told people, hey, like a good financial plan should allow you to test like, who knows, 10, 12 different ideas so you can see like what might happen before you actually make the changes. Don't make the changes now and like hope it works out later, like do the research, right? So we just gave it a name. So when I launched Formula Folios, it was like this idea of just taking a lot of the infrastructure from retirement wealth, making it available to other advisors. The efficiency gain here was that I didn't have to hire. I had, there was a pre-built market of all these people and a lot of advisors' biggest struggle was getting more clients, yeah. right? Getting in front of more people. So what if we help them do that? We also help them more systematize the back end so they didn't have to have a lot of staff. They could just sort of like run at scale. And it wasn't easy. I learned a lot about building like enterprise technology because building something for personal use is a lot easier as like a developer than building like these more complex, you know, like sets of user personas because the advisors weren't just the advisors. Sometimes it was like a team of advisors and they had like administrative help and ops help. So we had to build a lot more complex, you know, sort of back end, but it worked really well, right? So the, the, the flywheels, they say, like we just added like a new kind of element to it, turbocharged how fast we're growing. We went from, you know, adding, let's say 50 to 70 million per year doing it direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. Within a few years, we're growing at like 100 million a month of wow. our business in serving, you know, 50 plus thousand clients. And like, you know, the lessons learned, I learned how to build a team, grew it to 100 plus employees, served hundreds of advisors, um, again, served tens of thousands of customers. But there was still like one problem that I had and, and it was around like the cost. It really bothered me that, that it was really hard for us to drive costs lower because those same robo-advisors that kind of made me think, hey, there's gotta be a better way to deliver advice at scale. I don't think their way is the best way. I think there's this way with advisors that we could do it better. But I saw what their pricing was, right? Mm-hmm. Most of them around 25, 35 basis points. And I was like, how could we ever get it to where the advi- to where everybody in our ecosystem is comparably priced? And I just didn't ever see it happening, frankly. And a big part of why was because of our reliance on downstream vendors. And and the biggest one was our custodians, right? We were built on top of Fidelity Schwab, TD Ameritrade, great companies, um, made it possible to do a lot. Like without them, the RAA world does not exist. Like they, you know, especially Schwab, I think was so early in like supporting RIAs, um, then Fidelity, TD, and et cetera. But but unfortunately, they hadn't evolved. Yeah. Like my first RIA was formed in 2004. And in 2018, when I started Altruist, really very little had changed in 14 years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the biggest evolution was DocuSign, which was pretty miserable, frankly. And that was actually around, when I was doing virtual work in like 2010, DocuSign was around. You know, so it's like, like that even didn't evolve much in, in the last eight years. So I would just say that like the Formula Flows journey, I was there for eight years incredibly important for me as an entrepreneur um, because Altruist is a really big idea. Right. Like it's uh, it's something that's going to be, I knew it was going to be a lot of work. I knew that it was going to take a lot of capital. Um, I knew that it was very ambitious. Like we're tackling uh, an industry that's uh, not evolved a lot in a long time. The incumbents are really big companies. And had I tried doing this in 2010, I think I wouldn't have been ready for it. Mm-hmm. Like I needed to have like a another business in the middle that allowed me to learn a lot. Yeah, you know, and and get get kind of ready for doing something a bit uh, bit more ambitious. So they say that all visionaries are first problem seekers. And as you talked about each of your ventures, I see a problem that you were trying to identify. That leads us to altruist and the solution, reducing those costs. Where are we now and where are we going? Yeah, so we're we're in, uh, you know, the first third of 2021. 
I'm super proud of the product that we have today, but I'm even more excited about like what it will be like over the next few months. And it's actually hard to contain the excitement about like, obviously I know what our product roadmap looks yeah. like. I know how close we are. I know the quality of people that are here building what we're doing. Um, and so like, I have like this unwavering confidence in like what's coming. Um, and I think it's going to blow people away. But in terms of like what we can do today, we, we've largely started with Let's think about like all the points of friction an advisor would have typically. And, and I go all the way back to my 2004 starting up my first RA. When I started that first RAA, I used, um, but I tried getting Schwab and Fidelity. God bless you guys if you're out there like listening, <laughs> you know. But they said, no, I wasn't big enough, right? I didn't have any clients. I was a brand new startup, right? So they didn't even, wouldn't even give me time of day. But TD Waterhouse would, you know, before they were TD Ameritrade. And so that was my first custodian. And I just incredibly grateful for them that they were doing this. Like they were the first really to allow more RAs to launch. But when I launched, I, I didn't know really anything that would be, I thought like, okay, cool. I got a big company behind me. Yeah. I got everything I need. Until I went to like, you know, start opening accounts and trade accounts. And I realized like, okay, like actually not much works out of the box. And the, and the craziest part was I went to bill accounts. I was like, you know, I, I called up my like sales rep and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Just go to our affinity center. Like here's oh, the wow. link to it. And the, here's all the vendors. And, and it was, I was like, what? I'm going to have to go hire all these, you know, pay all these software companies like to do my billing or performance reporting, or if I want to give a client portal for clients to log into. I mean, it was crazy, right? So fast forward. 17 years. It's basically the exact same, right? Like if you're a new RIA, a lot of places will tell you no. Very few places will allow you to come in and launch. You still have to go stack all this other software around. The industry has bamboozled advisors into believing that's a good thing, right? Like they somehow are like, no, no, you get best of breed technology oh, to Sarte. You need more. You can build your own text. You can talk about your text. Like I'll talk to advisors, but I got a really impressive text. Let me tell you about it. And it's like 10 vendors. I'm like, that's embarrassing that this is where our industry has gotten to. And no one would have, like, again, me in 2004, and like I could write my own software. So um, I never would have been proud of seven or eight or nine vendors necessary to run my business. Like I would have known better and known that like vertical integration is the way to go. Yeah. Give me a one-stop shop so I can go give advice to people at scale, at low cost. To do your job. Right. Not manage an entire stack of technology and worry about integrations and shit breaking all the time. I mean, this is ridiculous. So we have like an industry today where I think like, you know, someone can launch an RIA on Altruist, zero minimum, no account minimums, all of the fee billing, performance reporting, trading, all built in. It's super easy to, to deliver advice at scale. Like my, and, and whenever somebody says like, well, I don't know, is Altruist mature enough? I could run my entire business, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of AUM, tons of sophisticated high net worth clients, mm -hmm. zero issues entirely on Altruist right now. So if someone thinks you have to have like, oh, do you, can I write, you know, condor options at scale? And I'm like, first of all, no. And two, why? Yes. <laughs> why do you need to do that shit? You know, you guys don't want it. Like they just want somebody who like they know, like trust, and they want to know what do I have? How am I doing? Is everything going to be okay? Like Altruist makes it really easy to do all that and to do it at like the most radically low cost ever. It's never been more affordable actually to be an advisor and be able to serve clients and charge really fair prices. And again, a lesson from Vanguard, right? How did they get out? Why performance is their number one thing they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And how are they getting it by efficiency? As advisors, maybe we should learn. Maybe there's a reason why they have like, I don't know, five trillion, who knows how many trillions of dollars, right? That yeah. they have, right? And it's because of like this laser-like focus on the things that really matter. If you can deliver your clients great outcomes, that doesn't mean like 20% returns, just the best outcomes you can, right? Which is gonna be 
keep their taxes low, keep their costs low, keep them committed to their plan. So make sure that you're not like doing things that are hard for them to understand. You know, confusion is a really good way to lose clients. So keep it simple. Um, and you'll find that you can actually grow a really successful business. And if people can do that, which they can do right now with Altruist, like again, our mission becomes very real, right? Mm -hmm. More people getting access to an advisor because all the barriers are broken down, all the minimums are gone. Um, fractional share trading is something we've done from day one. So who cares if you've got a client with five bucks? They can give them the same portfolio as a client with 50 million. And it could be a sophisticated individual stock portfolio, right? Of like all your favorite, you know, individual equities, all your fee billing fully automated. So you can be, you know, as I think like creative as you want, like you want to have a fee schedule that's 10 bucks a month flat fee, no problem. You can do that here, fully integrated into the platform, right? You want to do any AUM schedule you want or a hybrid of the two, you can do those things too, right? So, so the product's already in a really good state. It's going to do even more down the road. We're going to start supporting larger teams so that advisors that have more complex business models can use the product. Um, we'll be adding more account types. I'm really passionate. I know it's going to be a little while from now, but I'm really passionate about getting like UGMA and UPMO, like different custodial mm -hmm. accounts and retirement accounts for minors. Like those are really important to me at a personal level because if we want to make a change in like how people are able to access financial help, the, one of the best things we can do is to get at the youngest possible ages, like give people time on their side for compounding, get them knowledge at an early age, what it feels like to have an account. And we can do that in a way that no other custodian's ever done before. So I'm really excited about those things. Um, there'll be all new asset classes coming. So more than I can say, but but just, just uh, again, I, I'm probably like a proud dad, right? Like, you know, of this company. And, and we're building like, again, like this crazy good team that will also like double in size, I think this year. So, so I'm bullish, right? For yeah. obvious reasons. Likewise. And I hope that the, uh, the advisor community, you know, realizes that like, we're not out here just trying to build like this big, huge, impressive like company to go toe-to-toe -to -toe the big custodians. It was started with like this very simple process, right? Make advice better, make it more affordable, make it accessible. Like in everything that we do has to be able to come back to that North Star. If we do that, then we have a ton of success and we change the industry for the better. Um, Agree. Yeah, 20, year, 20 years coming, right? To Agree. Uh, solve that Agree. problem. Agree. All right, last question for you. I have a model that I live by. It's called push-pull. That means that we have the responsibility to push those who come behind us and push those that are ahead of us. So we're pulling those that are behind us, pushing those in front of us. I think you're doing that with a lot of young advisors that look up to you. I think you're pushing those the likes of Vanguard as well to continue to do the great work that they're doing, right? So my last question for you is for the advisor that's watching, wants to find success in their business, what are a couple pieces of advice for them? What should they be doing or thinking about right now so they can find that fortune, not success, that you talked about earlier <laughs> in the episode? Super well said, man. I I, uh, I love the idea of, uh, of the push and the pull. I'd say... Um, so one is, if we can, I always called this a low information diet. So when people looked at my business, it was really simple. But I'd say if you actually study a lot of the really, really big RIAs, like the ones that have 10, 50, 100 billion, their businesses are simple. And a lot of times the the um, simplicity is really like a huge uh, positive. So I would say like aspire to have a low information diet, which means like be very careful like what you allow to influence how you make your business. Like, you know, find something that works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, do less of it, right? And generally speaking, it's really easy to get discouraged if you consume too much information because you feel like, oh my gosh, this person's doing this and this person's doing this and this person's doing that. And a lot of advisors forget about the fact that like all that really matters is like what your clients think. It's kind of like using another parenting analogy, like you know, all that really matters is what your kids think of you, you know, um, and, and who cares about, about, about a lot of other things. But as an advisor, 
what matters is what your clients think of you. Um, try to have a low information diet with all of the industry stuff coming at you all the time, trying to influence you to feel insecure and do things that you really don't need to do. So I think that'd be really helpful. And then I, I hope that uh, we get more people who are like willing to mentor other advisors. The RIA space today is 40,000 plus firms. It was like a few thousand when I started and it's growing really fast, a few hundred new firms every month. And there's, uh, you know, I, I realize like, how valuable it would have been if I had access to like this, the 40 year old version of me today when I was like in my twenties. And I see that like the industry is getting better at that, like accessibility. Um, but I would just say like, if you're one of those advisors that um, has something that you can help move the industry forward by being a mentor, like make the time to do it. Nobody's too important. Um, it breaks my heart when I see people's egos get so big that they won't make time for other human beings. And so if we're going to figure out how we can pull people to catch up to us, like it just make yourself available and accessible, um, take your ego and like completely get rid of it altogether. Um, these are the things that are gonna make like the RA space in general, like advice in general, like just a far more impactful industry that helps more people. Awesome, well, Jason, it's been a long time coming. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to do this. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of The Human Advisor. Make sure to follow along with us at altruist.com. If you wanna to subscribe to the network, that's altruist.com slash grow and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. My name is Sarte Yarnway, Jason. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thank you, appreciate we'll talk you. Soon. This was another episode of The Human Advisor podcast. Visit thehumanadvisor.com for new episodes and be sure to check out altruist.com to learn more about how Altruist is changing the face of finance. No commissions, no biases, digital everything, the way it should be.